totally at the World Cup. How do you Soviets deal with all the tension and stress? Vodka. Day three, Iceland do it again. Messi's muffin leaving his side with almost nothing from all their huffing and puffing. There's something the Icelanders know all about. Elsewhere, irony is France-Australia game that's like pulling teeth isn't the one featuring manager who used to be a dentist and there's wins for Denmark and Croatia. Sunday sees two world-class sides in action. Costa Rica against Serbia is possibly neither of them, but Germany against Mexico and Brazil against Switzerland gives us our first looks at two of the favourites. It's the Totally Football Show, totally at the World Cup. Thanks for joining us. On board Totally today, we've got Jack Lang, James Horncastle. Hello. And welcome, Matt Davis. Hi, James. How's your World Cup been for you so far, Matt? Really good, yeah. Very yeah. much enjoying it thus far. All right. Uh, maybe with the exception of the late game this the season. The late game mm. on day three. A game too much. Yeah, a game too far. Well, of course, it was a great result for Croatia. Of course, we'll touch on that later. Jack, what was your favourite bit of day three? A football getting burst in the first game was always quite fun. More realistically, Iceland's minor heroics. That was extraordinary, wasn't it? The scores, in case you missed them, Iceland did hold Argentina to a 1-1 draw, a match that featured Messi missing a penalty. Elsewhere in that group, a 2-0 win for Croatia against Nigeria. In Group C, there was a penalty apiece and a deflected Pogba shot, which saw France go past Australia 2-1. Only their fourth group stage win in two decades. Peru, meanwhile, against Denmark, ended after Christian Cueva missed a penalty with a 1-0 win for the Danes, courtesy of Yusuf Paulson. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Those then Saturday's results, and we begin our look back at it all with Argentina's clash with Iceland. Lunchtime this was in Moscow, and how about Iceland? As we'd hinted might be possible, just like their Euro 2016 debut, coming in and in their first game, handing some of football's most illustrious names a bit of a cold shower. Pete Staunton, chief correspondent for Goal, sent us this on-the-whistle report from the Spartak Arena. Only one place to start with that one, really, and that's with Lionel Messi. He missed the second half penalty. Iceland deserve plenty of credit. They did to Argentina and Messi exactly what they did to Cristiano Ronaldo in Portugal two years ago at the Euros, and that's restrict one of the tournament favourites to only one point in their very first game. Now, that tournament didn't work out too badly for Portugal in the end. They won it, but Argentina have a lot of work in front of them if they're going to go anywhere close to winning this World Cup. Quite simply, if Messi isn't firing all cylinders and on full form, well, Argentina are going to struggle, as that proved today. He put one free kick into the wall, he put another one over the bar, he missed that penalty as we know, but there just isn't the quality in the striking lineup that Argentina have around Messi uh, to make sure that they don't have to be totally uh, dependent on him. Now, tempting as it might be to compare what Ronaldo did last night against Spain to what Messi did today against Iceland, but please resist that temptation. 
Portugal have a well-defined way of playing and in many ways Ronaldo is the cherry on the top, the goal scorer. Argentina instead are the very definition of a one-man team. Everything goes through Messi and like I said, if he does have an off day, then they're really going to struggle. Recriminations are going to be huge for Sampaoli after failure to beat uh, Iceland here in the opening game and this is a tough group. Pete certainly was excited by that. Another man who really enjoyed it was Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, but apart from him, so did Stefan Augustin, our friend from the Iceland World Cup podcast. Here's his thoughts on Iceland's latest exploits. I mean, it's obviously hard to put your emotions into words, but, you know, just thrilled, as everyone in Iceland is. It's hard to say that, you know, we expected this, but I think we had quiet confidence that this was possible. I think the fans were a little more dubious than the actual players. They, they seem to have this amazing confidence that they can just beat anyone or, or, or perform, you know, at the highest level. So they definitely thought that they could do it and were, were extremely proud. Well, this was terrific entertainment. My Wi-Fi brilliantly went halfway through. Uh, I just got to the bit where Iceland had equalised. So I missed the subsequent drama with, with Messi's penalty and the, and the Haldusson save. What did Iceland do and why couldn't Argentina overcome them? Jack? Well, from the Argentine point of view, I think they lost. They lacked a, a sense of urgency throughout the majority of the game, really, especially until Eva Benega came on. That midfield, too, of Bili and Mascherano just didn't offer enough going forward. I think they just looked cowed, really, that a lot of them are so intent on finding Messi in every situation. I think particularly obvious was when they reach the byline and they look up and every time they look to cut it back to Messi on the edge of the box and Iceland were just reading that like a book time and again. No players really willing to beat their men. Look at Di Maria who did very little all game. Aguero obviously a fantastic goal but didn't really have any further opportunities and actually I think Iceland had it fairly easy. They were very organised and they deserve credit, but it's not like Argentina carved out chance after chance. Yeah, and Halkomsen afterwards, the manager, was saying that there was nothing in their game that surprised us. Um, We prepared very well. But what surprised me about that comment was that it's very difficult to know what lineup is going to pick. We've all heard those reports that he's been working on this lineup for the last five days in training. Every occasion he's had them, um, you know, be it at the end of qualifying, be it the friendlies in November, in March, he's always changed, you know, be it the system, be it the personnel. And yet the, the lack of cohesion, I think, again, uh, played into Iceland's hands. And the build-up was slow. Uh, they seemed to do one thing over and over again in the first half, which was try and get in on their left-hand side by just playing this sort of diagonal over to uh, Maxi Mesa. And it didn't work. And they didn't really seem to have any other ideas. And because of that, and the lack of a supporting cast around him, Messi had to keep coming deeper and deeper to try and basically get things going, which meant he was further away from goal and not able to do what we see him doing at Barcelona. You talked a little bit yesterday, Jack, about some of the fears back in Argentina about what this match might hold. What's the reaction been like so far? Well, you look at Sampaoli's post-match comments, he's tried to obviously play it down saying you know Argentina can recover from this but I think you look at the way they played so slowly he's admitted they need more speed and need more variations but you wonder whether he's going to be tempted to change things up a bit you looked at Banega I mentioned Christian Pavon obviously also made an impact with just a little bit more directness he was willing to take his man on like his teammates weren't I think that could be a way forward but it's going to be tough for them I think because 
other teams will have looked at the way Messi was crowded out time and again, not man-marked, but often had two or three men, mm. like a welcoming committee on the edge of the box. Teams will look at that and think, well, that's how we do that then. It's pretty simple. Pretty simple. Yeah. And I don't think Argentina had much in the way of inventiveness, really, Messi aside. All right. Mm. Matt, though, I mean, without delving into the usual cliches, just phenomenal what Iceland do. We mentioned this, Pete mentioned this, what they did at the start of Euro 2016 with Portugal and how upset Ronaldo was. Afterwards, they come in here, you've got Messi, potentially the greatest of all time, having his penalty saved by a music video director. You've got part-time players in some cases shutting down Argentina's players. Yeah, but you've got the continuity that you don't have. It, it was basically the story of a ga- the game was a good, well-organised defence against a very poorly organised defence and obviously lots was made of it being Caballero's first competitive start. They, they couldn't help that Romero got injured but... Um, Sort of throwing in Marcus Rojo seems strange, which nobody thought they were going to do. But but with Iceland, you had eight of the 11 who started this game started against England. So the fact that they've got a, a small pool of players is something that they use to their advantage rather than rather than to their detriment. You, you can't speak highly enough of them, really. I mean, for such a tiny, tiny nation to have to have produced what they've produced in, in Euro 2016 and now what it looks like they're going to produce here. I mean, in terms of the penalty save, it, I would have had a reasonable chance of saving the penalty. It was really poor. It wasn't a, It wasn't like it was a particularly good save, but it really summed up the game. Really, Iceland just felt like they weren't going to be beaten at once they'd equalised. Unbelievable achievement. And normally you'd say, well, how much did they put into that game in which Argentina had 72% possession? They're going to be exhausted. Well, they're playing Nigeria next. So from what we've seen tonight, it's not necessarily going to be that much of a problem for them. That's a very, very winnable game for Iceland. Well, certainly Croatia found it that way. A 2-0 victory for them. Luka Modric with the penalty, the first goal... It was from Mandzukic and then... An own goal from Atibo, just flicked off him, yeah. Nigeria struggling to to clear a corner. We spoke in, um, when we were previewing Nigeria, about the the problems that they would have with this goalkeeper who's been been drafted in and he struggled particularly. But there was just no pace or dynamism about Nigeria whatsoever. Croatia didn't have to work very hard at all to get the win, which is a worry for, for the Super Eagles who... I mean, you look at it now, it's very difficult to make a case for them going through in this group, um, unfortunately. But as I say, Croatia, they've lost their opening game in each of the last three World Cups. This big deal for them to win, obviously, on a day when uh, Argentina failed to do so, um, very much in pole position. I did uh, enjoy Andre Kramaric in his column in The Times today uh, with uh, good insight on what it's been like in the camp and in Russia. Uh, He said, one thing that surprised me a little is that they say Russian women are very pretty, Hmm. but so far we've not seen many girls at all. Fascinating. Hopefully it gets better. Also, yeah, the Nigerian manager, he said that he didn't want to hear about any of his uh, players having Russian girls back at the hotel. Really? Apart from John Obi Mikel, because his wife is Russian. That's nice, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. What's the other story right now? It's about Nigerians supposedly not being allowed to bring chickens to the match. Of course, Mm. the chickens don't know how lucky they were in in this case. (laughs) But, I mean, if anybody knows if there's any truth to this, this story, because... It's it's bizarre. They wouldn't have got the chickens from Nigeria, though, would they? So would they have had to go out and scout a place to buy live chickens in Russia to then get them in the ground? It all seems a little far-fetched. Unbelievable. Unbelievable, this. Yes, yes, yes. Earlier on Saturday, who watched France cruise past Australia 2-1? Nobody, because they didn't. It was a tense affair. A little bit dour and drab in, in the first half, 
possibly Australia deserves something for their, their their dogged performance. James, did you see this? Yeah, I did. But Van Marwick afterwards was saying that uh, he was proud and disappointed uh, mm. because he felt they deserved to get something. They showed some real sort of Aussie grit. Um, and he was saying that no one expected this uh, from them, um, really, going into this tournament. But that, what, four-week training camp that they had had obviously worked really well. A similar kind of game plan to to Iceland, really, against Argentina. And they just managed to slow the game down when France themselves weren't slowing it down by passing so poorly and passing without any kind of tempo. But, um, yeah, denied any kind of space behind and made it very difficult um, for, for France to do anything. Australia do join the exclusive club of uh, Honduras, Togo and Switzerland, the only teams that France have beaten in the group stage since 1998. But all in all, a, a billion dollars of talent made to look fairly poor. What went wrong? Let's hear what Julien Laurence thinks. So many things went wrong today. Um, where shall we start? Uh, probably by the front three. All week, we baited over Deschamps' uh, decision to change his attack, to change his tactics, to change the formation. He had something before that was working in a 4-4-2 uh, and everybody just thought and expected him to, to keep it at least for, for this game against Australia because he looked at that 4-4-2 formation was perfect to play against this kind of team. Instead, he changed everything and he, he started with a, with a front three of Griezmann, Mbappé and Dembele, not in a particular position if you want they kept moving sometimes you had Griezmann in the center and then he was right and then Mbappe was in the center and they never got going apart from maybe the first 15 minutes they never had any impact on that game Griezmann was very very quiet uh, Mbappe tried too hard and tried to do the decision by himself and Dembele looked like he was not ready for, for a game of this caliber so Deshaun got it wrong and in fairness to him, it changed everything, you know, with 20 minutes to go, putting in Fekir and Giroud. And that had an impact because Giroud was crucial in the, in the Pogba goal or, or the, the front second goal if you don't want to give it to Pogba. So he rectified it in the end, but he got it so wrong from the beginning. And I think that's the main thing that went wrong was that. Then after that, I don't think the French were ready. I think they underestimated this Australia team. They thought it would be easy. And then the pressure as well, you know, seven players out of those 11 who started the game against Australia never played in a World Cup before. And I think, especially when you're a young player, this is something quite daunting and, and quite hard to, uh, to cope with the pressure and the expectations. So I think that, that France team being very average today. That was pithy from Jules, and you can get more of that kind of thing on the World Cup at ESPN FC. Jack Umtiti, what was he thinking? I'm not really sure. It's a strange place to put your arm in the box, mm. reminiscent of a couple of things Thiago Silva did, actually. He did that for Brazil at the 2015 Copa America, did it again for Barcelona against Chelsea, weirdly raising his arms, because I think you can excuse that sometimes for propulsion or if there's an opponent here. There wasn't in this case. The thing I wanted to say about this game, though, was France's second goal. How on earth has that gone down as a Pogba goal? He didn't even get a shot away. He was trying to control it. The defender comes in as he's Bayic, spoons it over the goalkeeper and not even mentioned on commentary or anywhere, given to Pogba everywhere. Well, it's a deflection. I think Pogba doesn't even shoot. He's trying to... Does he not? He's trying to take a little nudge past past the defender, I think. Okay. It was a nice, lovely bit of build-up, wasn't it? Very nice build-up, but you don't get a goal for build-up. I was intrigued to see this game because I wanted to get a take on France's prospects. Do they belong with, with the Germany, Spain's, your Spain's, your Germany's, your Brazil's? Yeah, I think so. I think it's quite... 
easy sometimes to draw two deep conclusions right. into the first game of a tournament. I mean, they had three good chances in the first six minutes of this game, France. So if mm. one of those had gone in, then it might have been a very different story. But um, also, the, the quality they've got to bring off the bench for one I thing. I think just yeah. as Nigeria hyped because they've got an amazing kit, right. France are hyped because they're amazing on FIFA. I think France are one of those teams that look amazing on paper and should be great. I don't really. I haven't seen them in two years play any very well on a competitive stage. Even though they've got to a final in that time, they haven't hit the same heights that, let's say, Spain have under Lopetegui. Right, but there's plenty of room for them to, them to sure. improve when they're playing. Maybe not an Australia that's kind of defending deep against them sure. and, and, and clattering in. Um, this game, Russian geography fans, uh, by the way, played in Kazan, which is east, Jack. Yeah, which meant that. The French travelled 815 kilometres to get to it. The Australians, cleverly enough, were actually based in Kazan. Was that the furthest any team had to travel in the World Cup so far? I can't tell you that, but I can tell you the total distances over the group stages because okay. L'Equipe did a little study. And France actually seemed to have planned it very well. They, they're the team that will have to travel uh, the fourth least in the group stage, oh. a total of 2,650 kilometres. Right. Who has to travel the most then? Uh, the most is Sweden. The most among the contenders is Brazil, who are based down in Sochi and have got three fairly big trips just in the group stage. Right. And then followed by England. Have, what, let's have some numbers here. Uh, so Brazil have to travel 7,700 kilometres. Wow. That's just in the group stages. Yeah. Which is the same as England, actually. And then the next of among the favourites is Spain, 6,500-ish. And then most of the rest of the big names have actually managed to keep it quite low. Germany, just over 4,000. That's probably enough numbers, actually, yeah. Huge distances. Mm. Who knew, Matt? Who knew? Nice piece of World Cup bingo here in okay. this game, um, as well as the burst ball, which we had in, in two games today. Yeah. I love it when you Wait, get... two um, burst balls? Yeah, the balls yeah. Are- it's, it's a problem. The, the Telstar, it's the new Jabulani in terms of its unpredictability, but um, yeah, not not robust enough. Um, but apart from that, one of my favourite sites in any World Cup, when you get a manager of some repute like Didier Deschamps, who's won the competition before, wearing his accreditation on the touchline, like he <laughs> he needs that to get. To, it's like you're Didier Deschamps, you know, you, you won it. Every, everybody knows who you are. But I'm I always get sure. a, a big kick out of those big, big, mm. big lanyards, big accreditations, unnecessarily worn. He was pretty chippy afterwards. He was like, you know, it wasn't a disaster. We did win. And uh, France have only won one of their last four opening games at World Cup. Yeah. So, and yeah, if you want to put that kind of gloss on it, yeah. Let's move on. Peru-Denmark demands to be talked about. James Fisher says, what did you make of Peru? I thought the best team lost. Advincola, Carrillo and co played well. Jack? Yeah, I agree. And Ricardo Gareca, their coach, said as much afterwards. They will be massively, massively disappointed because they played with a lot of heart and a great deal of attacking intent, especially in the first half when I think they they overran Denmark, made Denmark look pretty ordinary. I think Denmark are actually fairly ordinary aside from Christian Eriksen. Peru's problem really was converting that pressure into clear-cut chances. I think maybe if Kareka had his time again, he might play Paulo Guerrero from the start rather Mm. than bring him on at the end because he actually... Gave them a focal point. Jefferson Farfan was okay in that role, but I think he's more suited to a support role. And I think we had our first kind of tragic hero of the World Cup, really, in Cueva, because the the penalty miss aside, he played really, really well. His footwork's fantastic. He plays in Brazil, and he's not known for being a consistent player at all. He will turn up some weeks and go for months without a good performance. But you can see why managers and fans like him on his day because he's 
fleet-footed, two-footed, very creative, light on his feet. And I thought he had a fantastic game and it's such a shame that it was uh, marred by that awful spot kick. Mm-hmm. It was an extraordinary atmosphere because it must have been, what, about 80% Peruvians, maybe 500 Denmark fans. So it was essentially a home game for them. So that that, that will make it even more disappointing for them. And when they brought on Guerrero, he had two good chances to score. Um, but the penalty oh, that miss. Deal. That was yeah. one of the moments of the day. Terrific effort. That would have been the, arguably with Ronaldo's free kick, the goal of the, uh, the championship so far. Will they have a chance to show us more, do you think, in this World Cup? It's difficult after you've, after you've lost your first game. It's difficult um, to come back from, isn't it? I think probably, probably that's it for them. Um, that well, goal from Paulson, by the way, harsh, I fancy yeah. them against France. I fancy them to cause a bit of bother. There was a real buzz about them. They look like a kind of team that teams are really unfamiliar kind of playing up against. Um, it's just it's, the goal, though, isn't it? Is it? They're probably seven or eight good chances that they had, and mm. for for no goals to come from that and. As Jack says, Denmark aren't aren't great by any means. Um, yeah, I wonder if they've missed their shot. That that Paulson goal maintains the record of all Denmark's World Cup goals, all twenty eight of them having been scored from inside the penalty area. Sun, sea, sand, and football. Watching the World Cup on holiday sounds like paradise until you try watching a game online and realise seconds before kickoff that it's blocked. Well, instead of bemoaning your decision to book a trip during a tournament that comes around once every four years, you need to get yourself a virtual private network from bestvpn.com and you'll be able to access the internet freely wherever you are this summer, all for less than the price of a pint. Because you listen to the Totally Football Show, you can get 70% off a VPN by visiting bestvpn.com slash podcast. Bestvpn.com will set you up with a VPN in minutes so you can watch the football from your deck chair or by the pool. And when it comes to security, bestvpn.com will also protect your internet activity from prying eyes on open Wi-Fi networks. No matter where you are in the world, you can access your online home comforts with a VPN. So unlock the internet today with bestvpn.com. Find out more and get 70% off by heading to bestvpn.com podcast. OK, those were the uh, four matches from day three. In a second, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what's coming up on a very intriguing Sunday. Quick word, though, from Norbert Knapke. He says, as you know, I was a student at Notre Dame in the mid-1980s. I can confirm that before 1986, our wave skills were so advanced that we were experimenting with the inverted wave, wherein a standing crowd sat and stood back up. Damn. Magnificent. What next? A false wave? I don't know. (laughs) But whatever it is, I bet they've already thought of it at Notre Dame. Richard Clark says, do international players get paid for playing in the World Cup? If so, how much? Jack? I don't know for every nation, but there was a... Much was made this summer about Brazil, actually, because usually there's a performance-based payment system for the players who get played throughout this year. There's only two tiers, one getting selected in the squad, so they're actually all being paid a a chunk for just being there, and the only other extra they'll get is if they win it. Okay. So there's no... They're kind of trying to say, look, you're either winning it or you're just happy to be there. England, I think a couple of years ago, switched to um, donating the the proceeds, the the fee that the players get to charity, which is is a really nice gesture, I think, and actually went quite underreported at the time. So... Obviously, everybody wants to play in a World Cup, but you think about the commitment that it is, you know, including the the training camp, whatever, you're giving up two months of your life for free, essentially. It's probably worth a bit more praise than they get for it. Absolutely. Nice one, Matt. Very shortly, we'll be throwing forward to the three games coming up on Sunday. 
Tony Football Show, totally at the World Cup in a state of mind sense of the expression. And these are the games we're going to be digging this Sunday. First of all, one o'clock UK time from Group E. It is Costa Rica against Serbia. That's out east in Samara. At four o'clock, Group F action as Germany take on Mexico at the Luzhniki. And then at seven o'clock, back to Group E for Brazil taking on Switzerland way down south in Rostov. All right. Let's do some of our famous predictions. We've got most things wrong so far. <laughs> Let's see what we can do with these. Costa Rica, Serbia, who do you fancy in this, Matt? Oh, it's got to be Serbia, I think. Has um, it? Yeah, I think based on, on what we saw in their, in their warm-up games, Costa Rica lost both of theirs by an aggregate of 6-1. to one. Obviously, they were great uh, in the last World Cup, but we've spoken in the build-up to the tournament about their ageing squad and the sort of injury-hampered build-up that a lot of their players have had this season. Now, just look at that Serbia team, and it's mm. just brute after brute. Mitrovic, Ivanovic, Kolarov, Matic, um, and then and then a bit of quality sprinkled in there as well. I think it's, it's, it's I'd say, 3-0 Serbia here. I think right. a, a convincing win. A Serbia side coming off that uh, uh, massive 5-1 win over Bolivia in their last warm-up. That was uh, just, what, a week ago or so. Uh, Alexander Mitrovic netting a hat-trick there. James, you, you want to mention... Milinkovic Savage at this point. <laughs> will he start? I imagine he will start. There's crazy numbers being thrown around for him right now. Oh, yeah. In excess of, what, 100 million euros? Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, finding a, a, a position for him is quite difficult. What they've been doing is they've either played him on the tip of a midfield three or they've been playing him on the right of a midfield two. And this is a guy who plays on the left of a midfield three for Lazio. That's where he does his all his best work. But they did look very good against Bolivia. Admittedly, a very average Bolivia side. But everything seemed to click. And I think there's a lot of creativity in that side, particularly um, with Adam Lajic, the mercurial Lajic, just playing off Mitrovic. Um, because he's a, a very talented, inventive player um, and is good at set pieces as well. I mean, they've got so much kind of um, variety from from free kicks. You know, Lajic can whip them in, Kolarov can, Milinkovic can. In theory, they should they, they should they could be a, a, a dark horse. A dark horse. A dark horse. Yeah. Have you there seen one, James? No, but it's the kind of thing that people say to you, and you've yeah. probably had this as well, listener. Who do you think the dark horses mm. are? And you can they can say Serbia. We can all say Serbia. I think so. Yeah. All right. That's great news. Of course, they've got that the manager, Mladen Kristaj, who's literally in his first ever job as a manager. That's quite a big way to start also, the World Cup. Also, this game, James, will mm. be Milinkovic Savic's first competitive game as a Serbia player. He never played in qualifying for them, which is one of the reasons why Slobolian Muslin, uh, um, Kristaj's predecessor, um, got axed. Um, so, so yeah, it's um, it. It remains to be seen if they can all. Bring it this, bring it together. But um, yeah, they've certainly got the talent. All right, Jack, are you going with this Serbia love love in? Yeah, I think so. the The romantic in me probably wants to wants Costa Rica to repeat some of the heroics of four years ago. But the truth is, even though they're very defensive, they're not as watertight at the back as they probably would like to be. In the last year, they've conceded to the bright lights of Canada, Honduras, <laughs> Panama. Hungary and Tunisia. Mm. So you look at the players that these guys have mentioned, plus Arthurendu Santaric, who was the second uh, second in the assists list in European qualifying with seven. So much creative firepower. And if Mitrovic is on form, he's, we know he's a form player, you know he's a confidence player, three goals against Bolivia, I think he could be in the mood to finish off some of the chances they should create. Also, this is the one thing they've got 
that their rival for second in this group, Switzerland, have mm. not got. They've got a goal scorer who's ripe in form, has been in form since the turn of the year, and that might be the difference. Ripe. Well, that match taking place in Samara, which is the uh, the city which was the place where most of the Russian space shuttles were were built. Yeah. Uh, Switzerland, meanwhile, will be in a- action a little bit later on, 7 o'clock in Rostov, which is the combined harvester capital of Russia, and they'll be taking on Brazil. So, on one hand... Neymar, Paulinho, Gabriel Jesus, on the other, Juru. How do you see this one going, Jack? <laughs> I think this will be a Brazil victory, but I think it will be a fairly slow burn one. Oh, yeah? Yeah, Switzerland have made no secret of the fact they would like to come out and frustrate Brazil. They'd be delighted with a point. They have got a very good defensive record. Uh, they've kept 11 clean sheets in the last 14, I think. And Brazil in the pre-tournament friendlies did take a little bit of time to build up ahead of steam. Right. And we'd mentioned this before, that when they come up against teams that are all about defending, and they had this problem to an extent with England, Mm -hmm. that that is when they struggle, and this might be exactly that kind of occasion. But this tactical switch that Chich has done of of, of moving, dropping Coutinho back, back a little bit deeper... Might that be the difference this time? Yeah, perhaps. I think it's somewhere that he can certainly influence games. I think we won't see him there in what you might term the more difficult games, but it's an idea actually playing him there was an idea that dates back to last year. Chichi wanted to try it, probably in the England match actually, but Coutinho just had a few niggling injuries and he wasn't able to test it out then. I think going forward it certainly works because... He links up very well with Neymar. They've got a very strong relationship. They play together in the youth system. They obviously like swapping passes and, you know, swapping positions even. And with Marcelo on that side as well, Marcelo's going to captain the side here. I think that trident is probably their point of strength. It does mean, though, that they are more likely than they would be to get caught out on the break than, for example, if Fernandinho was in there. But for me, yeah, it's a positive move. I'm I'm pleased to see him there. One of the things that has gone a little bit under the radar about Brazil, I think, is that their defence has just been so good. You know, they've kept six clean sheets in the last seven games, and that includes friendlies against Germany, England, Croatia. Um, I think Alisson hasn't conceded in 574 minutes. So... They're good at both ends of the park. Mm. Matt, I'm afraid the others have talked about Brazil, so you've got to make a case for Switzerland. Okay, well, this is the only group game between two of the top six in the FIFA rankings, believe it or not. How about that? Um, Yeah, but we know how Switzerland have got into the top six of the FIFA rankings. When we were doing the preview show for this group, I did make a case for Switzerland maybe to finish runners-up ahead of Serbia, but, but the closer we've got to the tournament, the less likely I think that is, so... We spoke about uh, Harris Seferovic and his struggles in front of goal for Switzerland. So you just can't see where they're coming from. So unless Brazil have an off night and, and don't score, that's the only way I can see yeah, Switzerland getting anything. players does get written off a lot. And 15 of the 23-man squad have basically been there since Hitzfeld was there at the 2014 World Cup. And you know, if you look at their record, 2006 they finished first ahead of France in their group. 2010 they beat Spain in their opening game. Could they beat Brazil? 2014, they no go out died. to Argentina <laughs> after extra time, two minutes from from the end, and they just hit the post, Shemaili. So yeah, they might they might still split. Yeah. I can't wait to see Licksteiner against Neymar. That will be pretty uh, pretty nasty. I think. Neymar has got a new haircut for the occasion. He's rocking a uh, Patrick Swayze from Point Break. Oh wow, really lovely blonde flowing surf locks. Yeah, looks absolutely appalling. 
Shakiri's playing for a move, so that could be something good yeah. for Switzerland potentially. He's he's got extra nice motivation. Anyway, it should be a nice way to finish off the day. A day that uh, we'll have in the middle of it: Germany, Mexico. Ooh, at the Luzhniki, where of course Russia had the that wonderful five-goal opening match to this tournament. Tell you what, if we're going to talk Germany, let's dial up our pal Raphael Honigstein. I'm there. Hello, James. All right then. Are you in Moscow? I'm in Moscow, yes. Brilliant. Okay. Uh, are you enjoying life there so far, Rafa? Um, I'm not an investigative journalist. I'm not an opposition politician, so I do enjoy life, yes. It's <laughs> very none of those things. Anyway, listen, what's been the best thing so far? Um, best thing so far? I mean, I just came back from Argentina, Iceland, and I really enjoyed it because oh. great atmosphere. Um, the football was good. It had drama and it had 30,000 absolutely crazy Argentinian fans. At least it felt like 30,000. I don't know how many were in it, but it was tremendous atmosphere. Rafa, it's interesting because that was Argentina humbled and we've seen some big names come a cropper so far. Any danger, any fears that that might happen to Germany in this big clash Sunday with Mexico? Um, yeah, what big names are you referring to? I think Argentina the only team to really have uh, screwed up. Spain um, didn't get a win, nor did Portugal. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Um, I mean, Germany are in their usual kind of weird state of mind where deep down they're confident. They know that they usually turn up, that things tend to go well under Löw in opening games of tournaments. I think they've won every single one. But it's not been an ideal build-up. You've had the whole Mesut Özil, Iker Gündoğan, Erdogan affair. Uh, there's a small chance that Uzi might not even play, which um, might have something to do with all this. And uh, maybe a sense that the team hasn't really clicked so far in, in the uh, pre-tournament phase and that they're waiting for things to happen. So slight sense of trepidation, I would say. Yeah, six warm-up games. The only victory for Germany came against Saudi Arabia. And Jürgen uh, Love's team haven't kept a clean sheet since November, and that was against England. So, yeah, form-wise, a little bit worrying, Rafa. Löw has felt with Austria and Saudi Arabia, the two friendlies immediately before this World Cup, that he would have expected a team to just function a little bit better as a side. I mean, Germany's secret over the last few years has not necessarily been a huge array of absolutely sensational individuals. But the fact that they, like very few teams at this, uh, at this World Cup and very few teams at past tournaments, play as a team and play with an idea and play with a certain style and work very hard on the details, the kind of things that club sides do, very good club sides do, but very um, most international teams still don't. I think Löw was a bit disappointed that he hasn't seen that yet from his team. At the same time, he's hopeful that they will show it when it comes to the game against Mexico. Right. Mexico, who, of course, that, that kind of C team that Germany sent to the Confederations Cup last year, met and beat 4-1. Yeah, I don't think that's going to do that much for Germany's uh, psychology, but... You can expect maybe the Mexicans to have that in the back of their mind. Um, you know, you lose heavily. Albeit in an open game that perhaps had a scoreline that flattered Germany a little bit, you must be worried what the, the real Germany can do to you. At the same time, I think it's long enough um, in the past to not interfere too much. I mean, Mexico had this strange sense of, I wouldn't say entitlement, but absurdly high expectations of their own team. And the other half of the country are thinking it's going to be an absolute disaster. So I think Germany will try and make sure that maybe some of that negativity that's bubbling away, especially with that uh, supposed uh, sex party that they had, 
uh, will come to the forefront by having a really good start and not just not giving them any inch and not letting them into the game. Rafa Honigstein there, who you can follow on ESPN FC. Nice to hear he's doing well in that. Well, here's an interesting thing. The last three winners of the, of the World Cup, France, Italy and Spain, all failed to make it out of the group in the subsequent tournament. Have some of that in Germany. Germany have topped their group at every World Cup since 1990. Would maybe be the counterpoint. Something's got to give. That, yeah. Something's got to give. Who's going to be the key man for Germany as they take on this Mexico side? I'm going to go with Joshua Kimmich. Mm-hmm. Partly because in qualifying, he was the guy who out-assisted Dusan Tadic. He had nine assists. But he will be going up against Irving Lozano, um, who is the Mexican uh, starlet um, in this team. So I think that side will be something to keep an eye on. Maybe. All right. Super. Let's hear about Mexico then. Let's hear about the sex party, which Rafa coquettishly it wasn't a sex mentioned. party, apparently. This was Chicharito's birthday. He says yeah. he regrets it. He won't be doing that again. But it was just, it just wasn't, it wasn't nasty he had, business. He had friends around. Friends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's good. Uh, Mexico dominated uh, their qualifying campaign, but have really struggled in recent friendlies. They've only scored one goal. In their past four matches, good lord, they got beaten by Croatia, by Denmark. They only managed a nil-nil with a weakened Wales side, which you remember they, they spelt it with an H, Wales, on the <laughs> on the scoreboard. And uh, indeed, the only win they've had in, in their build-up is, was a 1-0 victory over Scotland. Yikes. Yeah, not too impressive. And there's, I think at home especially, there's a bit of pressure building up on the manager Osorio. It looks like perhaps as a response to those difficulties in front of goal he's actually going fairly attacking here so not only is he playing wingers Lozano we've mentioned and Jesus Corona but he's also going to play a number 10 in behind Javier Hernandez and okay. if there's a chance of Arsenal fans being disappointed if Mesut Ozil is not fit they'll at least be able to content themselves with Carlos Vela Carlos Vela looks like he's getting the, the number 10 spot in there been playing there for LAFC LAFC is he still on loan from Arsenal like Joel Campbell is I really hope so <laughs> <laughs> right any chance of Mexico springing a surprise on the Mannschaft? Personally, I don't think so, because Germany's record in opening games suggests that they are not a team prone to slipping up. You look at the last uh, four results, they put eight past Saudi Arabia in 2002, they put four mm. past Costa Rica in four, years, four years later. In South Africa, they put four past Australia, and four mm. years ago, they put four past Portugal. So those results would suggest this isn't a team that arrives at a tournament underbaked. But Mexico haven't lost the, their opening game at the World Cup since '94. They've only lost two of the last 17 group stage games. And Germany's form in the build-up has been as poor as Mexico's. But Germany have won yeah. one of six friendlies. That was against Saudi Arabia last week. So yeah. it's not the opener that Germany would have wanted, definitely. I'd, I'd give Mexico an outside chance of, of pinching a point, perhaps. Mm. OK, well, that's just one of three exciting matches that's coming up on Sunday. Let's get the odds on those games now with uh, Paddy Power and producer Ben. Thank you, Jimbo. Lee Price. Hello. Hello. I couldn't stay away after yesterday's action. Uh, phenomenal. Well, let's get right stuck into what's going on tomorrow, or today, if you're listening today, listeners. Uh, Costa Rica versus Serbia. What a classic. <laughs> it doesn't strike me as one either. Um but the odds are interesting. Serbia are ten to eleven to win this one. Costa Rica seven to two. The draw is twenty-one to ten. You think Mitro's going to be on fire again? He's ten to three to score first. 
uh, an interesting game. All right, classic World Cup fixture, Germany versus Mexico. What's, mm. uh, what are the markets doing here? I think it's going to be really interesting. Mexico are going to go for a free swing, I think, against Germany. So I'm hoping for a goal fest here. Germany are 4-9 to nine to win, as you might expect. Mexico are 13-2. to two. The draw is 10-3. to three. Timo Werner score first, 7-2. to two. A lot of people have him for the golden boot. And finally, it's Brazil versus Switzerland. Brazil, one of your favourites, probably the favourite still, yes? Yep, yep absolutely. Uh, Switzerland are no pushovers. They're not, but our traders think they were pushed over fairly easy. They're 8-1 to one to win this fixture. Brazil are 4-11, to 11, which is actually not that short and good value, I think. Uh, the draw, 7-2. Neymar to score any time is even money. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com. 18 plus only. Begambleaware.org. And when the fun stops, stop. Jack, are you going to be back in tomorrow? Is that right? Yeah, no rest for the wicked. Lovely. Sunday night, we're going to be reacting to those games. And, of course, looking forward to a busy Monday. James Horncastle, you're also back here. I am indeed, yes. Matt. You're going home to rest from four straight games of football, is that right? Um, sort of. I might be tempted to stay up for NXT TakeOver Chicago at, at one o'clock this I'm morning. I'm sorry, what? Whoa, what is that? <laughs> which is a wrestling event, which uh, producer Ben and I will be very interested in. We've got back-to-back late nights uh, going on. So what, yeah. do you, Can you say the name again? What was it? Uh, the first one is NXT TakeOver Chicago. So it's like the uh, developmental brand for the company. So lesser known wrestlers, a chance for them to perform on a big stage. Mm. And then tomorrow night is Money in the Bank, which is a, a main WWE card, which will feature the first singles match of one Ronda Rousey. So uh, that should be Both, oh, right. both yeah. sounded like rap battles <laughs> rather than wrestles. They sound like drill battles. Yeah. Drill battles. You, you don't want to be at a drill battle. Uh, right. Hey, by the way, listeners, if you'd like to get in touch, questions, comments, that kind of thing, at The Totally Show is the place to do it. On Twitter, you can find us on Facebook as well. We've got videos, quizzes, competitions, all that kind of thing. Monday, of course, our uh, competition will return with shirts and I think probably other prizes as well. Half time, that'll be in the England Tunisia match. Anyway, there'll be a brand new totally football show up for you tomorrow similar time so hopefully you'll be joining us for that for now from all of us here it's goodbye you've been listening to the totally football show a muddy knees media production subscribe now and get the latest episode delivered right to your phone for free and seeing as you're still here here's an extract from the new gaza in italy audiobook it's written by daniel story read by james richardson and published by harper collins Have a listen, and if you like what you hear, you can download it from iTunes or Audible for just £4.99. Remember, it's exclusively an audiobook, and it's called Gaza in Italy. Gascoigne has always been aware of his audience and keen to play up to his reputation in order to sustain it. This is never done with any degree of calculation, in fact, closer to the opposite. He is a man who wants desperately to be loved. As a player, he found love particularly easy to come by, simply by being, as Bobby Robson called him, daft as a brush, a phrase that was used by Gascoigne as the title of an offbeat autobiographical book published in 1989. In Rome, Gascoigne began in full charm offensive mode, or at least his version of the strategy. He turned up at his first press conference wearing a pair of joke glasses and a flat cap emblazoned with the logo of the Irriducibile, Lazio's ultra supporters. His first fortnight in Italy was spent cheerleading, talking up his appetite for his new life. This approach extended to his new teammates, who were aware of the frenzy surrounding Gascoigne, but cannot have been prepared for the eccentricity of his arrival. 
Before his first day of training, Gascoigne visited a bookshop in the city and bought 20 copies of a language guide for Italians learning English. A copy of the book was placed on the designated benches in the dressing room at the training ground as a welcome message to each player. If their amused reaction was predictable, so is the story that Gascoigne forgot his boots for that initial session and so turned up to his first training session wearing plimsolls. Lazio's priority was to settle Gascoigne in Rome. They put him in a villa in Formello, a suburb 12 miles from the city centre, and made two crucial gestures to ensure that the potentially difficult acclimatisation process would be as smooth as possible. The first was to play a two-legged friendly with his former club Tottenham, branded as the Capital Cup between teams in the capital cities of England and Italy, which would give Gascoigne a chance to gain match fitness having missed the start of the season. The gate receipts from the two games would go to Tottenham, negotiated as part of the transfer. It also gave the Lazio supporters an opportunity to see their new midfielder in action for the first time, and an unprecedented 30,000 turned up for what was a non-competitive game. As if to show his appreciation for their support during the drawn-out saga of his transfer, Gascoigne scored in the first leg in the Stadio Olimpico and jumped over the advertising hoardings behind the goal to salute his audience. In the return fixture at White Hart Lane, Gascoigne appreciated the overwhelming support of the home crowd for their returning player. He had been concerned in the build-up to the game that he might be subject to catcalls about his departure and accusations of greed. Gascoigne was perennially worried about what people thought of him, but his reception that evening felt to him as though he was being given the blessing of the English football public. Any unease he had about starting a new life in Italy evaporated. The second gesture from Lazio was to bestow upon Gascoigne their number 10 shirt, the importance of which cannot be overstated. For Gascoigne to be bestowed with the number 10 shirt as an Englishman was clearly an honour for him, but also reflects the impression that he had made within England's team at Italian 90. The English game had long been renowned for deliberately producing powerful footballers over technical ones, with the European ban in the 1980s blamed for making English football even more insular. Gascoigne, like Glenn Hoddle before him, bucked that trend and took his wares to Europe. To hear the full story of Gaza in Italy, download the exclusive audiobook on Audible or iTunes.